So Be Thou My Vision is probably my favorite hymn still to this day, but that one is one of them uh, for me. If ever, I love the My Jesus Tis Now. I don't know where you are in life. I don't know what it is that you've been walking through or experiencing. You may have had some of the greatest joys in your entire life in the last few weeks. You may have had some of the greatest challenges you've ever had in your entire life. But my guess is that there's probably been a, a point at some time in the last few weeks as we've been talking about suffering where things have been brought to your attention and you probably have had to say this, um, God, I need you to let me know you love me. Just this very week, yet again, confessing what feels like the one millionth time, the same besetting sin that just continues uh, to, to um, I'm not a victim, I choose it, so I don't, but it, it just kicks my tail. I had to confess it yet again. And there's that moment. I said, look, I know what's true. I know what the scriptures have said, but, but God, I, right now, I just need you to tell me you love me. If ever I love thee, Jesus, it, it, it is right now. What? Please help. We're in this series, and it's on 1 Peter, and we've looked at several things as time has gone on. Each week has brought to us a, a different perspective, um, if you will, but all getting at the same ultimate truth. And we'll see that next week when the, one of the verses uh, gets us what is the theme of the book, but First Peter tells us that when faith gets difficult, we can stand firm. A godly life is more compelling than persuasive lips. Unity brings blessing. Tells us also that we can either suffer in sin or we can suffer and serve. And last week we said this, we can rejoice in suffering rather than actually having to fear it. We don't rejoice over the suffering. We rejoice in what it is that God is going to do in the midst of the suffering that we experience. Now, again, I have no idea where it is that you are in life, but I don't think it's going to take me very long to tell you uh, this statement. I don't think it's going to take a whole lot to convince you. Many leaders simply tell others what to do. Now, this could be true in an organization. It could be true in, in corporate America. It could be true as a coach or a teacher. It could be true in a church setting. It could be in a, a wide variety of settings, the easiest thing for leaders to do is to simply tell others what to do. And in some levels, that is actually a part of leadership. We have to know what it is that we need to say and do uh, but the simplest thing is just, I want to tell you what to do, and it stops right there. John Maxwell, who is a man who has spent much of his life studying leadership and writing on leadership. In fact, he wrote a book called The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. You can't refute them. 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. It's really good. I would highly commend it to you. But uh, he says this, a leader is one who knows the way goes the way, and shows the way. Now, we're going to borrow his language and we're going to apply it because I think this is what the text is telling us this morning. John Maxwell happened to put these words about leaders in general. I think this is what the text is saying about godly leaders, about elders in the church. But let me apply it here. Godly leaders know the way, they go the way, and they show the way. What do we mean by that? They know the way in which it is we are called to live by God. 
They know where God has called us to go. They have become so familiar with the scriptures. They know the principles that are laid out. They can wisely discern through prayer, et cetera, seeking counsel. They know the way in which we are to go in life. They know the way to live a life that pleases God. They know the way. They know the way because they are familiar with the person of God. Godly leaders in the church, though, they also go the way. Meaning it's one thing to know what it is that we are supposed to do. It's another thing to actually put it into practice. I've shared this illustration with you before um, in the past, but several years ago, while at the JH Ranch, I was a whitewater guide and I uh, had back-to-back weeks um, on, these, um, uh, on these trips. And so there were students. And so one week we had, I had a group of guys that literally every guy in the raft would go on to play college football, literally. The next week that I had, I had junior high girls and their arms were about as big as my pinkies, right? So in this raft in here, what happened was uh, I gave them the instructions. We come up upon what's called a class five rapid. It's a really great rapid. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's the one that everybody goes rafting for. It's a ton of fun, but they're also really dangerous. And so if you don't approach it the right way, if you don't hit the right way, it can, it can cause a lot of harm. So we get out. I start taking rocks and say, we're going to do this here and here and here. And so I'm going to give you this command here, this command here. When we get to here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to spin the raft around. The girls listened to every word that I said. I mean, hung on every word, paying close attention, even as I'm explaining it. And then as we're going down the raft, these girls' ears are attentive. And so when I said right side, back paddle, everybody on the right going, and the other side's going forward. Every command they were in on, they were so obedient. We get to the rapid. We do the complete 360. We hit it with perfection. It is on film to this day, captured. It's on VHS. It's so priceless to watch. The girls' eyes get as big as saucers as they go down in here, not knowing if this was the last breath they would ever take. Then they come back up, they hit it, and then there's this joy, this expression. They do the high five with the paddles. That's like, yeah, yeah. Fantastic fun. Then there were the guys. The guys who uh, literally could get out of virtually anything. Like there was, there was nothing we couldn't paddle out of. Same exact process. We get out of the boat on the side of the river. Here, here, here. Here's the command, command, command. Get down there. And as we get closer to this rapid, their eyes also get a little larger. And so my command goes as follows. Right side back paddle. Same exact command I'd given the week before. Huh. Right side back paddle. Yeah, I heard you. They are watching this rapid. I do an emergency maneuver in there to try to get us spun just a little bit so we're not going down sideways, which would be really bad because we could wrap around a rock. There's other things we could do. Emergency, get us out that we all get dumped out of the raft. Praise God, none of us lost our lives. We then crawl back in the raft as we get further down the road. And then some debrief from the guys saying, guys, what happened? And here's what they said. We heard you say it. We just didn't do it. It's one thing to know what you're supposed to do. It's a whole other thing to actually do it. And leaders in the churches, not only do they know the way, they actually go the way. Some would say it this way. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. 
Do they do it with perfection? Of course not. Only one person did it with perfection. But they actually live the kind of life. The intention of their heart is to live, to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. They know the way, they go the way, but then finally they show the way. What does it mean to show the way? It means that not only are leaders in the church there to help people see what it is that we are supposed to be doing, could be doing, the opportunities we have in front of us. Not only do they serve as examples who go before folks and they get a chance to watch them do it, but they actually come alongside of the people of God and they help them know how to walk the path. So let me say it this way. The easiest thing to do is to tell you, you know what? You need to pray. That's easy. Do you know how to pray? It's easier for me to say, you just need to study your Bible more. Thank you very much, Captain Obvious. Do you know how to study your Bible? Well, you guys just need to share your faith more often. Do you know how to share your faith? This is what the leaders of the church are called to do. To know what it is that God is saying. To go and do what it is that God is saying but also to help you, equip you to live the life that God has called you to live. That's in essence what we're going to see in this passage. Now let me flesh it out for you as we get. If you, can, if you are able, you have the physical health to do so. Would you stand in honor of God's word? And we'll read from 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll read the first uh, five verses. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You may be seated. Peter writes, and the first thing he says here in verse 1 is, I exhort This word exhort could also be uh, translated plead or even beg. I am pleading with you. I'm not just merely suggesting. I'm not just tossing out an idea about something you might want to consider. I am falling on my knees and I'm telling you, would you please do this? Not because necessarily they weren't doing it, but because this is the heart of God. I'm begging, I'm pleading with you. I'm urging you. I'm charging. I'm challenging you. But from what position is he coming from? Is he coming from a leader who likes to stand over the others? I mean, after all, this is the great Peter. This is the guy that Jesus looked at and said, hey, your confession right then, I'm going to build my church on that confession. This was a leader. This was a guy who was a close personal friend of Jesus. Peter could very easily come in and say, and by the way, did I mention that Jesus really loves me? that I'm high up on his friendship list. I'm part of that inner core. I got to see a lot of things you guys didn't see. So since I'm the man, here's what you should do. That's not what he does. I exhort you. I beg you. I plead with you. How? As a fellow elder. I'm one of you. 
I know what it's like. I know the joys. I know the frustrations. I know the challenges. I know the opportunities. I know what it's like to be utterly exhausted. And I know what it's like to be so stoked that I could run my head through a wall. I know what it's like to see the light bulbs come off in somebody young in their faith. And I know what it's like to see someone who just finally gives up. I'm writing to you as a fellow elder, a guy who gets it. And as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. That last section, a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, I think he is giving us an illusion here that he has already seen a portion of this when he saw Jesus be transfigured on the mount, but he's going to save the book for, for verse 4 in there. But look what he says before that. As a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, what has he been saying here in, in, in the, the fourth chapter? It wasn't the fourth chapter for him. Um, uh, but what has he been saying in this passage right before? He's been talking about what it looks like to suffer, to walk alongside um, of others as they suffer. He says, man, I know what it was like to watch Jesus suffer. I think he's speaking specifically in here, not only about the entire lifetime of Jesus, but I think specifically he's looking at the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross of Calvary. He was with Jesus when Jesus said, will you guys come and will you pray with me? It was after the last meal had been served. Jesus made his way out into the garden. He was getting prepared for the trials that would come before him before the crucifixion itself. He says, keep watching me, hang with me, pray with me. And they went a little while. And and then Peter was one of the guys that fell asleep while Jesus was asking him to pray. Jesus, Peter saw the agony. He saw the sweat. He saw the blood. He knew the stress, et cetera, that Jesus was experiencing. He watched that, and then he watched Jesus being beaten. Now, remember this. Scripture does not record that Peter was present at the cross itself. So when Jesus was hanging on the cross, Scripture does not record that Peter was there. What we do know is this, though. There were moments in which Peter would observe Jesus as he was making his way from one place to the next, trial, trial after trial, and it was after one of the beatings. It was not the, 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 the brutal beating that he would experience right there at the end before being crucified, but it was one of the beatings he would have. His face would have been bloodied, and Peter watched him go across. He watched him leave, and that was too much for him. Hey, I know what it's like to see the sufferings of Christ, and I know what it's like to turn my back on the very guy that I said, everybody else may go away, but I'm going to be here. I know what it's like. I'm exhorting you, not as somebody that is over you. I'm, I'm one of you. Now, what is he exhorting us to do? It comes right here in verse 2. This is the heart behind the entire passage. Everything is, is a fleshing out of this. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. He uses the term here in the first verse, elders. There are other passages which use three terms for the leaders in the church. It's an elder, it is a pastor, and it is a shepherd. Each of these terms are used interchangeably. You'll notice that he says that it's elders in the plural. We have every reason to believe that every church had elders 
in the plural, not just a single individual who would make decisions on behalf of the church. I do not wish to take any shots at other forms of government where they have a single individual who is in charge. I don't wish to do that. Um, they can love Jesus. Uh, we'll see them in heaven. Um, but I will tell you, I, I do not think it's the best representation, the most faithful representation of the scriptures. The scriptures portray that there is a plurality of leaders called elders. No one man had all of the authority except Jesus. God only trusted Jesus with all authority in heaven and earth. When it comes to men, I believe he chose to diversify that to give multiple men the authority in the church. Do you know how many pastors you have here in the church in Wildwood? You have close to 30 pastors. You say, holy cow, where are they? Where are they? Where are they? They're called elders. There's no distinction between an elder and me. A ruling elder and, and, and me, a, a teaching elder. No distinction. Not in the scriptures. There's some practical distinctions. There's some things that I do that other guys don't have the time to do because they are also working full-time jobs outside of that. But there's a plurality of leaders. Human history has recorded all sorts of great and wonderful and wise decision-making, hasn't it, between men that have unlimited power. It is never a good idea for a single individual to have power, and I believe God gives it diversified here. And this is one example that Peter is writing about. What should these men do? Each of them should shepherd the flock. Now, here's the picture that he gives. He's going to be, how we shepherd is going to be fleshed out in the rest of this passage. But here's the idea. The idea is of a shepherd with a sheep, with a lamb, with a precious animal to the shepherd. Now, much has been said about sheep over the years. In fact, some of it, I think, is actually untrue. When we actually do the research and find out what is true of sheep, we learn a couple of interesting facts about them. Yes, and on the one hand, they are, in fact, defenseless. No question about it. They're, they're not going to go out and defend themselves very well against a lion or a bear. But do you know that sheep are not dumb? In fact, it's quite the opposite. They're actually very intelligent. Sheep are actually very cooperative, normally speaking. They can actually take turns as it comes to drinking water that is still before them, that the shepherd has led them to a still water, they actually will in a very uh, cooperate and, and, and take turns as they feed. But here's what I find to be most interesting about sheep that I think is important for us to know. Do you know that sheep can actually tell the difference between about 50 human voices? Much like your dog knows your voice, Correct. Let's say that you go away for a little while on a trip and you come back in and your dog hears that voice and what happens to that tail on that dog? That hind starts shaking, it's going, yeah, it's my person. He or she is back, it's great. Sheep can hear the voice, they know the tone. Now listen, sheep know the difference between a good shepherd and a bad shepherd because of the way that they have been treated by the shepherds. So if you want to come up and rough up a sheep, it'll work for a little while. But when they hear your voice from then on, they are moving away. But for the shepherds who cared for those sheep, who were tender with those sheep, who took out splinters out of them, who, who, who steered them in the right direction, who protected them, when they hear that voice right there, they come a-running. Do you know the voice 
of the shepherd. Have you listened to him? Have you been cared so deeply by him that when you hear his voice, you come a-running? The idea is that we, as the leaders of the church, our primary function in the church is not to govern the church. It is a part of the responsibility. It is required. It is biblical that we do that. But do you know the amount of information that's given in the scriptures as it pertains to how the shepherds are to govern the church versus how it is that the shepherds are to shepherd the flock? There's almost no instruction on how it is that we should structure the church. There is passage after passage after passage after passage as to how it is that we care for the sheep. Now you tell me, what's God's priority? Being a part of some type of board that would oversee the finances of, uh, of the church? Or men who choose to say, we have lots of folks in our congregation. And what I want to do is I want to go and place myself up underneath them that I might exalt them, that I might serve them, that I might care for them, that I might love them, that I might teach them, that I might pray over them. This is what godly leaders do. They know the way. They go the way. They show the way of a shepherd. Now, specifically, how does that flesh itself out? It says that we are to exercise oversight, but not under compulsion, but willingly. So one of the ways that we shepherd is willingly. Oversight, this is a great word here in the original language, and it means to actually get up and to be able to look down, not condescendingly, but to get up high enough so that you can see the entire scope of the responsibility. It's meaning this, that there are times in which we ought to be focusing in on specific individual sheep. There's no question. The scriptures talk about this over and again. There are times in which every elder ought to be focusing in on an individual uh, particular sheep. But as a general rule of thumb, the job of the shepherds in the church is to look and to oversee the whole. Get the big picture of all of the flock. I think the best way for us to do that is when each elder takes a portion of the congregation, and that seems to be what has happened throughout the church or in the church throughout the ages. Notice, so we're to exercise oversight. It's not to be under compulsion, but it is to be willing. What does compulsion mean? It means that we are forced to do it. Now, John Piper gives an illustration in regards to marriage that I think is appropriate here. And I love this illustration. It's a very simple illustration. He says this, ladies, let's suppose that your husband comes home one day and unannounced, he rings the doorbell, shows up, and he has a bouquet of flowers. And you look at that and you say, well, what are these? And he says, these are for you. And you would look at him and say, honey, thank you so much. Why did you do this? And he were to get a big grin on his face and he were to say, duty, obligation, because I have to. Is there a lady in the room right now that would say, whew, that would warm my heart. Piper then says, let's rewind, let's go back. Same scenario, doorbell rings, you show up. Honey, what are that? These are for you. Why did you do that? Because on the way home, I just couldn't stop thinking about you and thanking God for you. And I just wanted to get these for you. Is there a difference at all in those two approaches? Elder, why do you serve in the church? Golly, 
Because I have to. I've been called by God to do it, and I've got no other option to do it. God's probably going to tar and feather me if I don't do this. Versus, ah, the sheep. What an honor and a privilege it is to be called by God, to see the the sheep that are amongst us. And I get the joy and the privilege of hanging out with people. I get the joy and privilege of being able to laugh when you laugh and cry when you cry. I get a chance to help guide and steer. I get a chance to just sit and listen. I get a chance to care for people. Is there anything else I would rather be doing? Serve, not under compulsion, but willingly. Because as the scriptures say, the love of Christ compels us in the best sense of the word. God's calling compels us, and we say, oh, God, thanks for the opportunity. And I trust that you're going to give me all the energy, all the wisdom, all that's needed in order to do this well. So serve willingly, not under compulsion. The second thing he says in there is to serve eagerly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. What does that mean? The term that he uses in here um, for uh, eagerly is the same term that is used by Paul in another section of Scripture when Paul talks about giving with this kind of a mentality. We give eagerly, expectantly, cannot wait to see what God is going to do with this particular gift. It is a joy to part ways with the money so that God can use it to further some kind of ministry. That's the way Paul talks about giving. Same word in there. So we serve as elders eagerly. Cannot wait to see what it is that God is going to do in your life. The contrast he's making here is that those who get into it. Now, Paul, uh, uh, yes, Paul does in another section say that it is actually a good thing for pastors and elders to receive some level of support to, uh, to maintain uh, ministry. 1 Timothy 5, 17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Here's what he's getting at. It is a good thing for the leaders in the church to devote more time, effort, energy, etc., to the things of ministry so that the saints can be equipped in it. There's a perfectly legitimate model where a pastor can be bivocational. He can work uh, full-time um, out in, in the world and then also give some uh, overtime that he have to ministry. Guys can split it in half. You can do part-time ministry and part-time uh, some other job. And then what Wildwood has chosen to do with their pastors in here is that we are called um, to be set aside, freed up from the worries of life so that we can devote our full time and attention towards the ministry. Some guys get into it specifically for the money. And here's what he's saying in here, that it is for shameful gain. What was taking place was that the people, as they would give their gifts and tithes and contributions, et cetera, they would bring them all to the elders. And what he's saying is don't let the elders, who are the ones who are handling the money at that point, don't let them get into the business because they're saying, wow, we got some really generous people around. And so there's a way for me to actually be lazy, a sluggard, be a part of ministry. Man, I can get rich. He says, don't do that. Now, historically speaking, in America, this was not really much of a problem because historically speaking, there weren't a whole lot of opportunities for pastors to get stupid wealthy. But in today's day and age, conferences and retreats and books, et cetera, there's all kinds of celebrity that's out there. I have a great concern for some 
in the ministry where it seems to me they are driven by the financial aspect of it as opposed to the ministry aspect of it. I think what he's getting at is this. When he talks to a church, just take care of your pastors. Just make it such that they don't have to worry about money. But don't make them rich. Because if they become rich, typically speaking, what happens is, whew, I am so glad that my bank account looks like this. Now I have no need for God. Don't make your pastors poor and don't make them rich. All elders in the church, he says here, don't serve to get wealthy. Serve because you can't wait to see what God is going to do in their lives. Notice next, he says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Don't stand over those that God has placed underneath your authority. God has placed the church underneath the authority of the elders in the church. The scriptures are very, very clear. No one elder has authority over anyone in the church. I don't have authority over you. I can't tell you what to do. The collective group of elders, they collectively have the authority over God's people. And here's what he says. Those of you collectively who have this power, don't stand high above them and don't look down upon them as if somehow they're less than. Instead, look at them like they are sheep. And what moved Jesus oftentimes in the scriptures when he'd look out and he would see a group of people that were like sheep that had no shepherd. They had no leadership. They had no organization. But most importantly, had no one that was caring for their very souls. So when you, uh, when you rule, um, do it in such a manner that is not over overbearing it. Don't lord it over them. Don't remind them that you're in charge. Serve them. Love them. Pray for them. Listen to them. The same idea is given in the scriptures. Husbands, love your wives. Yes, the authority's been given there, so how do we do it? In the same way Jesus did it, by placing ourselves as leaders up underneath those whom God has put under our care, that we might exalt them. That's the way of Jesus. That's the way of the great shepherd. And it should be the way of all under shepherds. Be an example to the flock. What does it mean to be an example to the flock? I think it means simply this, that we are leading the way. Have you ever had a leader that got so far past in front of you that you did not know how to actually follow them? Very, very briefly, same place I mentioned a few minutes ago, the J.H. Ranch. We had two very charismatic leaders that were part of this, uh, this, this program we're doing, high school students. My job is to just simply be one of those that are being led by these high school students. We get dropped off at point A, we're supposed to end at point Z, and my job as the, the actual leader in there is to only step in in an emergency, but it's to let the students do all the leading. So I just get to be back there in the back. And one leader was so charismatic, so energetic, a go-getter. The guy was the energizer bunny. There was never any way that he would ever, you know, you get tired. So once he found out how to read a map and compass, that dude, gone. 
And he got so far ahead of us, he did not realize that the rest of the people couldn't keep up. The other week, though, it was, a, it was an Eagle Scout. Have you ever been around an Eagle Scout? One of the most ridiculous human beings on planet Earth. Like, give them dental floss, put them in the woods for a year, they'll have a house. It's incredible how, how what they, this Eagle Scout not only knew how to read a map and compass, not only is he leading us without any errors in terms of turns, et cetera, not only do we get there in the fastest time possible, Ed, but all along he's going back, how are you? How are you? How are you doing? How are you doing? How's the trip going? It's good. Comes to me. You going to live? You going to die? Can you breathe? You okay? All right. he, the, the guy led in such a manner, he's right amongst us. Don't lead in a dominator. Set the example. Don't set the example that you are the Michael Jordan of spirituality. And nobody can do what you do. Don't do that. Set the example right in front of them. But now, listen, this is so important. Please hear this, church. And please hear this in the right context. Elders can set the example in all manners of living, but it is up to you as to whether or not you will follow. I don't care how good or how poor a shepherd is. It is up to the sheep as to whether or not they will follow. Moses, great leader, highly revered. Do you know how many people actually followed him? You know how long that journey should have taken, coming out of the promised land? God's man, anointed leader, God spoke to him, he met with God, etc. The people did not choose to follow Moses. So shepherds, set the example. Set the example in conduct. Set the example in loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Set the example in how you pursue the person of Jesus over pursuing a religion. Set the example when it comes to loving people, pursuing those that are outside the faith as well as those inside that need help. Set the example in all that. But it's up to the sheep to choose whether or not they will follow. Verse 4, he says this. He says, and when the shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading clown, uh, crown of glory. The word that he uses for this crown was something that was placed on the athletes. It was uh, put on their heads and it had um, uh, things that were living that would be cut off and put together and then they would die. And he says that you've got this crown that is going to be unfading. It is never going to lose its luster. It's, it's never going to go away. That crown that I'm going to place upon you is going to be a crown of glory. Now, please hear this. What he means is that there is something that will be so deeply satisfying for all of you who lead God's way that right now it may be frustrating. Right now it may be hard. Right now it may be so difficult that you want to quit. It is difficult trying to love to the best of your ability, but knowing that you personally have your own limitations, but that also people are all just as sinful as you are and are going to respond in various and sundry ways. It may be difficult right now, but if you press in, if you keep going, if you keep loving God, if you keep loving others in there, this crown of glory is coming to you and it is going to be worth every effort that you make. But shepherds, please do this. Please don't ever get into the delusion that you are going to help someone and that you are going to be the hero of the story. Great shepherds always, 
point people to the shepherd. And the sheep, the sheep are grateful for the under shepherds who lead them to the great shepherd. You are not going to have any elder in this church that is going to solve your marriage problems. No elder, no individual in this church is going to be able to, to, to help you with the relational difficulties between father and son or mother and daughter, etc. No elder is going to be able to turn things around for you at work. No elder is going to be able to solve every conflict that exists inside the walls of the church or elsewhere. Elders can't do that. Good elders know how to bring people into the presence of Jesus to get you connected with him because he can actually solve all of your relational difficulties. He can heal your marriage. He can bring about a relationship between father and son, daughter and and mother that can be healthy and thriving. He can make matters turn around at work. He is the one who does all that. We are the ones who merely get you into the presence of God. So elders... You spend a lifetime serving the sheep, knowing that some are going to respond well and some are not. You're going to get a crown of glory, and one day you're going to say, God, thanks. On a personal note, it has been such a joy and a privilege to shepherd the hearts of people. I've had to learn how to do this. What comes natural to me is to use people. What is supernatural is to care deeply in the way that God says to care deeply. Over the years, it has been great to watch when Judith feels shepherded, feels loved, cherished, valued. When she feels as though she is respected and honored, when she feels as though that I love her simply because she's Judith. And in those moments when I know that she senses it and feels it, do you know what happens in my heart? Great joy. In those moments in which my children have been at genuine peace and rest because dad's not trying to change them or mold and shape them into the image of what I want them to be. When I am listening, when I'm valuing, when I'm honoring, when I'm loving, when I'm caring, when I'm listening, when I do that and I see it on their faces and I know they feel loved and shepherded by me, you know what happens in me? Great joy. The greatest gift that you will give the leaders of your church is your own passionate pursuit of God and just your deep-seated appreciation for their efforts. This last part's very quick. What does he call everyone else in the church to do who is not called to be an elder? Likewise, you who are younger, I think he is specifically referring to younger men in there, um, for obvious reasons, uh, younger men historically have had more testosterone flowing through their body, um, less actual thought, um, more rebellion, um, etc. So I think he's, you, but, but it's for the whole church. You, whole church. Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And then know how it is that God functions. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let me work him backwards. 
We're going to talk more about this next week because the passage goes on to explain this further. God does not just stand passively against pride. He actively opposes it. He presses up against it. My lifelong struggle, the struggle with pride, not believing that I'm better than you, but believing that there's something I can do for God. God puts up with that for a little while. And then he comes in, he hammers me. And I wish I repented of it like that. But over the years, he has gotten my attention in some very unmistakable ways. David, I oppose your pride. So humble yourself before God, before he humbles you. It says um, in there, um, uh, for us to be subject to uh, our elders. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, which means basically uh, don't think more highly nor think more lowly of yourself with others. We're all image bearers of God. We're all in this thing together. Your gifts are not more or less important than mine, et cetera, et cetera. Be subject to the elders. What it means is very simple, and it means this, that we should come and approach our elders and say, I may not agree with you. I may not understand everything, but I trust God so much that I trust that he is going to work through deeply flawed men to bring about his will for our church. And so whatever the decision is that you guys make, whether I agree or disagree with it, your decision will become my decision. And I will support the work and the worship of the church as if I had made that particular decision. You would trust God so deeply that you would be willing to follow men that you may in fact disagree with. Can I close by just telling you this? Throughout this week, I've been thinking about all the elders of the church that I've been privileged to be associated with, whether it was a, before I was in ministry as a kid, whether it's been as, as, a, as a young guy in ministry, um, far more arrogant and, and, and naive, um, whether it's a guy that is now in, in his 50s that's uh, learned a little bit more and, and see things a little bit better perspective. And all the elders that I've served with are under. And I can tell you this with sincerity. Wildwood Church has been blessed with some men of faith, godly men. I am not aware of a single elder in the history of our church that is not a man of God. Are they perfect? Of course not. But they're men who genuinely love God and their greatest desire is for you to know God intimately and to make him known. Some of those elders have gone on to be with the Lord. Some of those elders have gone on to other places. Some of those departures have been good and, and, and easy. And, and as we, we celebrate, others have been very painful and difficult. But Wildwood, you have been blessed over the years with genuine, godly men. And every man that's serving you right now, I can say that's true of. Can I ask you to do one thing? When we think about ultimately how to apply this passage, would you pray? Would you pray for us as leaders in the church? We are working through difficult things. We are in difficult times in the life and the history of Wildwood Church. And we need wisdom. We need discernment. We need God to do what only God can do. So would you pray? Would you ask God to do what only he can do.